Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Hey everybody. It's Michelle and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts.
to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody, we are back. Also, I just realized that I probably say, all right, everybody, like we're back on like the beginning of every episode, but like, whatever, I'm a creature of habit. Okay, so today we have the one and only Dr. Memory Gosa, PhD, CCC, SLP, BCSSS, Associate Professor and Chair with the Communicative Disorders from the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. My stepdad would be really, really happy to know this because he's from Alabama. And she's also behind the scenes. And I don't know if everybody knows how much advocacy and networking and the ginormous amount of volunteer work you do on behalf of our profession and our colleagues and our patients for pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, but it's a lot. She crushes it with grace and I just adore you. So thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for that warm introduction. I'm happy to be here. I told you last time you were my first podcast and now you're my second podcast. Um, So I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time talking with you about our favorite subject. Yes, 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 yes. And guys, we were like, all right, let's peg down a date and time when the stars were aligned. Well, we will record this and then come up with the recording theme. And then it was like, okay, well, we got the time pegged, but there's so many different things that we both love about the world of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. So today is a smorgasbord. Today we're going to go all over the place and let the conversation naturally flow. And I am excited about that. I kind of thought we would start off with some big South Carolina news and maybe talk about where that's going to go. And then by the end, we will wrap it back around to a teaser. Because if y'all didn't go last year, then shame, shame, shame. I'm just teasing, but like, but for real. But this year we have year two of the pediatric feeding disorder track at ASHA. And Dr. Gosa chaired up the inaugural committee last year. Disclosure, I was able to volunteer last year. I volunteered this year and she did it again this year. And we have some phenomenal speakers headed to New Orleans in November. So please join us the week before Thanksgiving at New Orleans in November. I can attest having been there back in June that the Bloody Marys and beignets make quite the perfect post-convention treat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I will add to that from I mean, it's probably been a decade ago, so I don't know if it's still there, but colleagues and I enjoyed a drink called the Sexy Alligator (laughs) after Dysphagia Research Society, probably at least 10 years ago. But if you happen upon one of those, they're also delicious. Oh, that's that's fantastic, a sexy alligator. I mean, I ordered a Bloody Mary and was like, oh, this is perfect. And then got halfway through and was like, Erin, we need an Uber. She's like, we're walking a block, Michelle. I was like, I, 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 I'm not sure my legs remember how to move. That central pattern generator was compromised. <laughs> but yeah, like, well, you know, <laughs> the, it was probably the combination of the humidity and... <laughs> the alcohol. Yes. Yes. That's my story and we're sticking with it. But anywho, I'm just saying Hillary Cooper throws one heck of a Lisha convention. So huzzah for PFD and Lisha. Hillary, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, all right, let's start with some of the big, the big things going on in the world of the world as we head into back to school season here in South Carolina. The one and only Angie Neal, who is known actually for her work in dyslexia, speech sound disorders, and she's the queen of R. She's the, which is like that in of itself, the woman needs a tiara just that says I am the queen of R. But 
Angie Neal wrote the updated SLP companion guide for the Department of Education for South Carolina Speech Language Pathologists. And chapter 13, I love the irony of this, chapter 13 now has been added and is officially live to address pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders for 3 to 21 within the LEA. And that is that is amazing. And how far we've come, at least the last 20 years, from where this was really not something at all that was talked about in school systems. In fact, I remember people in my class as a graduate student saying, I'm not so worried about the dysphagia information because I'm going in the schools, so I won't have to worry about that. To now, chapter 13 says, we're doing it. Man up. (laughs) At least in South Carolina. Yes, but that's what I thought we could talk about, this evolution of how that overlaps and why that needs to be serviced and treated and what are your thoughts and insights and how can we process improve? Absolutely. So let's start with just the fact that pediatric feeding disorder, when that framework came out in 2019, it really gave us language now to look beyond just does the child aspirate? Do they have a G2? But to look at holistically at the whole child and how their feeding is impacting their relationships with their caregivers, their ability to participate in school settings, feeding really impacts everything. And so with the introduction of that PFD framework, we now had language and ability to identify and describe beyond just traditional swallowing impairment because it set out the four domains that we look across to see how the inability to eat in an age-appropriate way impacts psychosocial functioning, impacts feeding skill, impacts on medical nutritional diagnoses as sort of comorbid areas or tangential areas to that PFD diagnosis. And so with that, then looking into the literature, what came out from that was this is not a rare issue. This is not something that is isolated, that only impacts kids that are, you know, seen in your traditional intensive feeding clinics. When we use this framework, we really see that this impacts a lot of different children, right? And where are all of our kids during the day from August through May, they're in school systems, they're in school settings, right? So I think that for me, that was a big game changer there was having the language and the ability to identify these kids and they didn't have to be quote unquote aspirating for us to say there's an issue there. So that really helped, I think, identify, shine a light and say, this isn't rare. This isn't something that only happens to a small percentage of our kids. This is something that impacts a large percentage of kids that are already on our caseload. That's, for me personally, this policy change here means that my anxiety about my kids eating that I work with is dissipated because, and that is selfish in and of its own right. I am saying that my anxiety is dissipated, but like imagine the families of their children that are now at school for breakfast, snack, lunch, and snack. Because how many of our children have free and reduced lunch that also have PFD? So that piece you say brings down your anxiety some because we know there's services available for the kids that we work with. Where my anxiety starts to creep up is do all of our school therapists have the tools, training, knowledge they need to confidently and effectively work in this area? No, I didn't talk about that part of the anxiety. Thank you, Dr. Goza. I can, I anxiety anywhere. I can, I can <laughs> ramp it right on up. I know. It's okay. We're going to be fine. It's fine. Oh, bloody hell. But like, this is, it's a start. Let me backtrack 400 different thoughts on this process. We hear all the time that school-based clinicians are across the country are not paid at the rate of their OT and PT counterparts, correct? This is a very common argument, right? 
In some states, such as our own, you don't necessarily have to have a state license in order to practice in the public schools on the grounds that can get by with a a certificate, which is a whole other thing. And I won't go deep dive there. Don't worry, Skisha Advocacy, go team, hoo-wah. But that being said, when you're treating pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, you are practicing at the top of your professional license. So by the addition of this to the SLP companion guide, by the addition of this, but by highlighting this aspect of our scope of practice and holding the school-based clinicians accountable for this service that is rendered, again, they're practicing at their top tier, which means they must maintain and hold that state license. All right. So is everybody with me for this Michelle Dawson thought process? All right. So when you are practicing there and you're billing something that is medical necessity from a policy perspective, probably don't need to have a teacher quote unquote certificate because we're not practicing as a teacher. We're practicing as a licensed professional, which bears merit for when you are, I don't know, advocating as a collective body on why we should have workload versus caseload versus a salary increase, because you're doing the one thing that if you are not doing it well, could place a patient's life in jeopardy. Right. To that, I would add, there is a case for it being educationally relevant. As we started our conversation with, PFD touches all areas of a child's life. If they're not getting adequate nutrition, calories, they are limited in their ability to participate in the school setting from an energy standpoint, but from a psychosocial standpoint, all the parties, all the rewards, all the good things in schools tend to revolve around the opportunity for social interaction with a feeding component. Yeah. So there's that piece that goes with it. It is medically necessary. It is also educationally relevant and it challenges our clinicians who like school SLPs are the top of the world to me because they do everything, right? They really take our profession as we learn it in graduate school, where we touch all these different areas, voice, cognition, literacy, language, arctic, feeding, swallowing, all of those pieces, and they practice it every day. They don't have the luxury of being like a clinical specialist and really just deep diving into one area and being able to say, well, those other pieces, I don't see those on a regular basis. So I'm really just going to focus here. They do not have that luxury. They are the top of the world to me because they can do all of these things. But now we're adding one more thing to their plate. And how are we equipping them? How are we equipping them? What's happening in South Carolina? We built in to the companion guide our preferred recommendations for quality resources Mm -hmm. and current evidence-based practice. Go team! As we did in our last podcast, it turns out non-speech oral motor exercises are not necessarily current evidence-based practice for treatment of PFD. So, yeah, or anything else. Thank you. Yes, sweet Mary Mother of God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, we could go down there again, but I digress. So we talked about how, one, we do have to take continuing education, but some of the resources that we gave recommendations for, for actionable items. Step one, incorporate the Feeding Matters rat card, that six point questionnaire into your screens for intake. So when you have your child find study, we're asking when you're doing your child find and you're doing like the comprehensive diagnostics with everybody, add in that one six point questionnaire that takes three minutes to go through. And if it's a red flag for, hey, we may have PFD, then complete a clinical swallow evaluation. Now, 
Angie is a goddess, and I'm not quite sure how she managed to make this. We even put in there guidance on when it was appropriate to put instrumental swallow evaluations and made sure that everybody understood instrumental swallow evaluations have a place and that they must be done, especially for our patients with known oral pharyngeal dysphagia, or we have to have a copy of their most recent instrumental. But the whole fear of if I make that recommendation, the school is going to be liable we're first and foremost called to do no harm. That's a huge component of our code of ethics. So embedded in this is the recommendation in black and white, give or take, I don't know if you use a color printer when you go to print this thing, I think it should be in gold with stars on it personally, but why we are supposed to include instrumental swallow valves and that it is necessary, which frees the hands, figuratively speaking, of the licensed professionals on the team. And we included, and for the team, the PFD team, but the PFD team also clearly outlines the role and vital need to have OTs involved as well. So where the SLP could run lead, the OTs could also run lead on this. So we outlined the screening tool, the need for instrumental swallow evals, as well as a clinical swallow eval, knowing that we do not have x-ray vision, and then followed it over with the appropriate team members down to the principal, the assistant principal, the special education, the general education teachers, the para pros, like everybody. And we have to thank Emily Homer because she was foundational in creating the outline teamed. But Who am I missing? What are your thoughts? I was thinking about the work that Feeding Matters has done in the last 20 plus years and looking at their website. They have an entire resource library there that includes the rat card that you were just talking about, the screening measure that it was written as a resource within this document that you guys are implementing there in South Carolina. And then, but also right there on the same page is swallowing and feeding services in the school setting. Things parents should know by Emily Homer. So again, these resources are there and available on the Feeding Matters website, which has really become just a treasure trove of information that we can access freely we can send our families to this same site and they can get in touch with Feeding Matters to get parent resources, but also to connect to a parent community so that they can talk with, share experiences with other families that are going through similar things. So I just really feel like it's a fantastic resource. And the best part to me is the way that they're able to connect families together. Yes. And I love that Feeding Matters and DRS have started collaborating mm-hmm. to expedite current evidence-based practice yeah. to parents to empower them yes. such that when they see therapy being rendered, they can knowingly ask the critical questions. What are you doing with my child and is this appropriate? Mm-hmm. How does this help? How is this making an impact? What can I expect to be different at the end of this session than it was before. So I, I appreciate Feeding Matters work very much. And I love this website. The resources that are there, particularly the rat card that you guys are talking about, it's an easy six question screener that can be in its parent report. You know, it can be done as part of the intake, like what you guys are doing. It's also something that I think pediatricians can also add in to their well-child visits or have that information available in the waiting room so that parent can access and learn about PFD in that setting as well. Pediatricians are also a class above for me, you know, step above for me because they also have to manage all the different areas of child development and child health. They don't get the luxury to narrow in and to be a specialist in one area. And I think about all the things they have to be aware of and screen for things that are really high prevalence. Autism comes to mind and now PFD as well, because it's also a high prevalence condition. So, but Feeding Matters is really making tools available to make that process reliable, easy to access, and effective for getting kids the services that they need. I got to be honest. I remember being so naive 
when I first started on this journey, thinking that all pediatricians would have the answers for everything that the children encounter, right? And then realizing through the tutelage and mentorship of honestly, our own son's awesome pediatrician. And she was like, I have to know a little bit about a lot. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. And she was like, I have to know enough to be dangerous. And then I'm paraphrasing. Those are my words, but like, and then when, when it's appropriate to make a referral. And one of the components that I also didn't realize until I became a mother was that every time we ask a family to go through a referral, how significant the out-of-pocket copay expenses could be. Well, and the time commitment. Yeah. Yeah. But like, unless you, I didn't learn that firsthand until I had my kids and like, both of them had to have all the bits and pieces worked on and surgeries. And it took us six years, but folks, we paid off $45,000 in medical debt after all of mommy's surgeries and the boys. And um, I'm sure with inflation, that would have been like $72 billion, but like whatever, it's paid off. And we have better health insurance. Go team. Yay. But that being said, I couldn't fathom it because I wasn't in it. Yeah. I have spoken previously about how having my own children changed everything I did as as a therapist, as a human. Everything changes, but particularly my approach to clinical practice was enlightened after having my own children. This piece in particular, there is a financial cost to everything we ask families to do. There's a trade-off in most families because money is not unlimited. So if I do this, then I can't do this. And then there's also the time piece. Like you a feeding clinic appointment, a diagnostic appointment takes all day. There's a paper that I've read and I think that was in the title. It takes all day. It's a one hour appointment, but it takes all day to get to the facility, to get checked in, to meet with all the different professionals. And yes, it's convenient to for the team to be able to meet and do things all on one day. And in theory, it's also convenient for families, but just the out the day's work that is missed that's usually a financial trade-off for the family as well and then just being in a hospital setting with young kids is hard like a clinic setting is not a fun day for kids and their siblings sometimes because you don't have you know extra help to manage kids that aren't actually there for the appointment so that's a lot and that's usually just your diagnostic appointment those are easier to come by than therapy appointments. Here where I live, you can get diagnosed fairly easy. Finding services to help, that can be years on a waiting list. So that's where, folks, if you aren't familiar with it, Feeding Matters has a scholarship. And the scholarship can assist with offsetting the medical cost and with getting you to providers that are out of state because just like you said, it could take years, dude. I mean, for some of these kids, they don't have years because the severity of their PFD, secondary to whatever the unknown etiology and or multiple etiologies and comorbidities are, they could succumb to it. So I feel like I'm Debbie Downer. Also, poor Debbie, whoever Debbie is that like coined the phrase Debbie Downer. We're not picking oh, on you. And Karen, like, right? Now everyone <laughs> talks about Karen. And I know some lovely Karens. And I just feel like that's unfair. My mom's best friend is Karen from London. Yeah. And she's always like, she was like, well, I don't know about this. Exactly. <laughs> but the way she it, I'm like, oh, that's great. Yes. I but, also but, have some great friends named Karen, and I just hate that that is now the association for them. <laughs> but that point about how it takes so long to get in, to get services, can be helped by providing those services in school settings. Kids are already there. Yes. Which brings us full circle back to that. Yes. All right. So, and here's. A shout out to my dear friend, Kristen West. It is beyond going to just putting a plan in place for 
maintaining status quo, we also have to make sure that they are adequately nourished moving forward to progress their diet, i.e. we have to be able to do treatment too. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, listen, compensation is one thing. Keeping someone safe while they eat and drink is important. We can't leave people there. That's been the biggest change that I've seen going to DRS and ASHA and all of these things over the last 10 plus years is that there is a movement towards treatment. How do we make it better? How do we help kids achieve the goals that they have for themselves, the goals that their families have for them? How do we bridge that gap so that it's not thick and liquids for the rest of their life? That's our stop gap. But how do we get to the next thing? And so, so much work has gone into that. There are fantastic labs. I think about the group in New Zealand with Maggie Lee Huckabee's group, where they're looking at using SEMG and other biofeedback modalities to help train new feeding and swallowing patterns. The same with Dr. Georgia Malandraki's group at Purdue. There's fantastic work that's being done here. And I am thrilled to see it in the literature and then begin to see it implemented in our treatment settings, maybe even in schools, you know, now that we are having this bridge effect that we see taking place, at least in South Carolina, hopefully in other settings too, as we're able to show that this is efficacious and it's safe and there's a benefit to the kids that we're working with. I'm just saying, y'all, if South Carolina could pull this off with all of the things that we have really got to do for process improvement in this state, then you too should be able to do this as well. <laughs> so, like, Well, and I think it speaks to the kind of grassroots efforts and dedicated professionals saying, here's the issue, here's how we can address it, and then pushing forward with that goal in mind. I think that is a testament in South Carolina and other places as well to um, the power of dedicated professionals. Volunteers. Okay. So change topics to go there. We have a family phrase. We always go, all right, change toppings. And I'm not sure how it came out, but like change toppings. Also, the little guy calls chest, chest, no matter how many times I go to fix it. He's like, no mom, it's chest. And I'm like, Okay. It is now. Yeah, it is now. Change toppings, everybody. But I don't know if y'all have picked up on the trend that a lot of the folks that we bring on are industry leaders and joyful thought instigators, originators, but also they all dedicate a significant body of time, energy, and talents in volunteer work and networking and putting the word out there and connecting like-minded, passionate people. I mean, some of us are clean, dirty hippies with solar panels on your roof in downtown Columbia, and that's kind of funny, but like, there it is. What are some of your favorite grassroots efforts that are going on or that people could volunteer and be a part of? Because I feel like we have quite a tiny army of joy to share. Absolutely. So, well, this feels almost like a love affair with feeding matters, but I'm going to bring them up again because they have, <laughs> oh, baby, we can do that. I mean, they have lots and lots of volunteer opportunities at all levels. If you have an hour a week to give, or if you have 20, 30 hours a week to give, they can fill your time and they provide training for their volunteers. So I feel like they do a nice job of integrating people that want to volunteer into the process. So they obviously do great work. We've talked already about it, but they offer volunteer opportunities and they're a great place to punch in and get involved regardless of what level of knowledge or skills that people have they're available because they have lots of different avenues for helping. So I think they're a great group. I cut my teeth in volunteerism with ASHA and have always appreciated the opportunities that I had there. I had worked first with SIG 13 when it was a division, when it was division 13. I started in that they had a pediatric focused subcommittee that I was able to volunteer for and then progressed through different roles and responsibilities there. ASHA also has lots of 
opportunities to volunteer. Sometimes I feel like it can be harder to connect or to find your people there. But the way I got started was filling out a volunteer sheet on their website that said, I want to volunteer. These are the areas I'm interested in. And then someone reached out. I have not looked back from that. I still volunteer with ASHA and appreciate the opportunities there. But there are smaller groups that are springing up. I think we talked before we started recording today about what's happening in South Carolina is really the result of a small group of people who recognized an issue and said, we're going to push forward for that. Hillary Cooper's group at, you've already talked about her today too, there in Louisiana with the Dysphagia Outreach Project. They are really gaining momentum and making an impact in the community directly to the patients and families that they work with. Here in Alabama, I'm going to do a self-plug because for the last, I think, four years, I've been working with Dr. Kendria Guerin out of the University of South Alabama to raise awareness of dysphagia in our state, but then to also help bring in resources to get everybody on the same page with the most current information. So we've done a series of almost like a lunch and learn approach, one hour, once a quarter. I've done some of them. Dr. Guerin has done some of them, but then we've also brought in colleagues from other other states and disciplines to provide sort of an interdisciplinary uh, approach to it uh, and providing one these CEU events for free because they're on Zoom just to get everybody on the same page because we have people practicing in this area across the lifespan. We have some brand new grads that I think have gotten more current information in their graduate programs all the way up to people like me who have been practicing for 20 years now and didn't have a dysphagia class as part of my curriculum. So we have people at all levels. And so trying to provide information that bridges gaps and knowledge base, we just finished the first version of, or the first iteration of our big conference that we had planned for 2020. And then we all know what happened in 2020. But two years after the fact, we were able to pull it off there in Mobile and it was informational and it it was exactly what we wanted it to be. But the bigger goal of it was to connect people in our state that are of like mind. So we did it in Mobile. We're going to do it again here in Tuscaloosa in October. So it's September 30th through October 1st here in Tuscaloosa. And the goal is educational. Yes. But the biggest goal is to lay eyes on people in our community that are doing the same work that we're doing, get us on the same page and create these networks of providers and opportunities for us to connect to say, okay, I am working with this patient looks like this. Tell me about what's happening in your facility They came from your facility, just so it's not as mysterious. It's not just individual silos of people doing their own thing in their own places because that's the way they've always done it. It was really cathartic to actually have that happen in this first iteration and we're looking forward to it happening again. So we call it the Alabama Dysphagia Collective, the ADC, and we are slowly building this network of people in our state to eventually be able to do some volunteer work to get everybody up and running in a place where they can make a difference locally in our state. And I think you probably have something there in South Carolina that you are also involved in. Uh, um, A couple different things um, uh, of which some of I can talk about and some of it can't, (laughs) but definitely heavily involved with Feeding Matters. And on this backside, again, it feels like it's a Feeding Matters promo code brought to you by First Bite. Honestly, it's Skisha. Our state association is the biggie and it's the big impetus. And we have advocated, y'all, it's been, I moved here 10 years ago on a Friday the 13th, which was either going to be a really good move or like, eh, we're screwed. And it was through our state association and by advocating that we were able to bring CPT codes into the manual. Doctor, because we didn't even have access to 92526 or 92601 or 92061. Let my 
numbers reversal show, but we didn't have access to the correct CPT codes in the CMS manual to even do an eval and treatment. And nobody knew about it until I brought it up at a board meeting that they were making me code 92507 for my PFD treatments. Folks, that's called Medicaid fraud. And, and, you know, that's kind of illegal. So we were able to get that fixed, but that took advocacy that took grassroots efforts. Now, did we get paid at a very abysmal rate once we got it? Yeah, I shot myself in the foot. But at the same time, we're turning around and advocating for an improved rate, right? So, but again, that takes grassroots advocacy. Now that we have these CPT codes and we have the ICD-10 codes, now we have to interface with practitioners that don't know what these codes are and how to use them. So then since October, I feel like all I've done is had to call pediatricians to get them to change the referral script. And that's exhausting. I don't have enough time in the day. I work two and a half days a week treating patients, but I am back to back to back to back during treatments, right? Like it is, that's why when people email me, I'm like, I'm a schmuck. I get to emails on Friday or Saturday morning over coffee, but like I'm wiped by the end of Wednesday after treating at that pace. But if we don't know how to write a script for a referral and it goes out ARFID There is a significant difference in diagnosing a two-year-old with ARFID than diagnosing them with a chronic pediatric feeding disorder. And the services that they're going to be able to access are different based on that diagnosis. And our identification of those very distinct, unique diagnoses is then different. Like We started our conversation today saying PFD is not an isolated incidence. We see it across diagnoses. We see it across kids. The only way we get that information is if it's accurately diagnosed. Yes. And we can't be silo clinicians. I mean, to be fair, like literally wrote that into the book, but like you can't be a silo clinician and expect to have positive patient outcomes. It's just... Okay, wait. So the other thing, we honest to God talked for like 30 or 45 minutes before we even went to start recording today because it was just fun to play the catch up. But one of the other things we talked about was this whole concept of, okay, we didn't talk about social media, but I have to preface this with, I see baby led weaning everywhere on social media. And this is how you should be parenting your child. Also, if you're not doing it this way, then the unspoken message is you have failed as a parent, right? I have literally picked up the child who had a diagnosis of the most severe and profound case of eosinophilic esophagitis I have ever seen in my life. And the initial speech pathologist eval from an inpatient clinician said, and I quote, patient's mother failed at baby led weaning. Literally, they wrote it in their report. And it wasn't until the mother's very dear friend advocated that they even ran a scope in to find out that this kid's esophagus was like basically fishnet tights and he got a G-tube and then we got the diagnosis of EOE and then we could start in on the healing journey. But mom had attempted baby led weaning because that's what she was told by her practitioner to do. And that's what social media told her to do. And so like, that's what people see, but social media is the root of all evils. And just because somebody gets on there and does a tick of the talk movie, real booty shaking thing does not mean, and I know I'm old and Aaron, I just heard you laugh so hard. You snorted in your car. Cause I know you're listening to this, but that is not how we disseminate Evidence-based practice. Dr. Goza, have you ever done a tick of the talk to share evidence-based practice? Yeah, no, I'm not even on TikTok, but that's just because <laughs> I'm old and I have my own ch- children who would probably be mortified if I was on there doing TikTok dances and other things. So, I mean, if Joan Arvidsson ever does a tick of the talk, I will eat all of this. She is the one woman that would get grace. She could get on there and do whatever, and I would go, okay, yes, her. But like, also, she has a lifetime's contributions to preface this. Right. To prop up on with that. I think social media certainly has a place to spark interest, right? Like to get somebody going, oh yeah, I need to learn more about that. But it can't be the only thing, right? Like I can't summarize 
Dr. Arvidsson's contributions to our field <laughs> and her, the things that she has put into the literature, the knowledge that she has imparted in 20 seconds. Like it, it's going to take more than that. So certainly I think social media can be great for teasing and getting people interested in topics. And we have lots of colleagues that use social media so effectively and have, have really used it in a way to guide people towards resources. I think about Dysphagia Cafe as an example. That was one of the first online kind of places that I was aware of that was using social media and other in the website to post things. You know, he invited speakers or professionals in our field to contribute articles and now webinars and other things in a way that reached people that hadn't previously gotten that information. And we see that being done in other ways, like with the MedSLP Collective and with um, the STEP community, like they're great resources that people find out about through social media, but they're not putting every, like social media can't give you all the information you need. So there's so much there. (laughs) So much with the TikTok and the the things. Yeah. So what we're saying is that we need to go to ASHA 2022 and enjoy a, what was it? A tipsy alligator? Tipsy or alligator. Tipsy alligator. Yeah. I think it should be called Crooked Crocodile because I like alliteration, but <laughs> that's just. <laughs> you can make your we- own. <laughs> oh no, I should not. <laughs> well, but it, social media, it can be used for good. It can also be used for evil, <laughs> like someone feeling empowered to say that a parent had failed at something like baby led weaning. There is a good article that I will send to you if you haven't had a chance to read it. It's not out of our discipline, but the title of it is called Presenting Complaint, Use of Language that Disempowers Patients. Wow. And the, what oh, you just say that again? is an example of that. It's called Presenting yes. Complaint use of language that disempowers patients. And it is in the British Medical Journal. And the author is Cox and Fritz. I'll forward it to you so you can see it. And it's just so important, the language we use. Patients and families have access to those medical records and they should have access to those medical records. And when they read things like that, it just severs the relationship that should be there. You know, they don't trust the person who has written that now because that's a misinterpretation of what happened. Also, that lays the foundation for how I entered the conversation with that practitioner. It's going to change my perception of them because I feel that they are negatively charged against this family. And okay, so Dr. Marion Russell who is a phenomenal OT out West. And she is with NoTube. It's either NoTube.com or NoTube.org. One sells tires. One is a feeding tube dependency clinic out West. It's based off the Grazie tube feeding clinic from Austria. They're affiliated. And they have all the forms of communication go through the caregiver. The caregivers on copy for everything. Think about the tone with which you would speak to your counterpart involved in the patient care when it's just you two having coffee, typing notes for the 0.2 seconds you have between patients versus how you're going to talk when the parent's in the room, right? It's going to change. All of us are uncomfortable to admit that, you're myself included, but like it's going to change. Well, it makes a difference when you think of, so sometimes when I'm doing presentations, I want to know who the audience is and For that reason, right? I don't want to say anything that might be clinically appropriate, but would be offensive to families. And I think as we move forward, I have to change my mindset. And just because something is clinically accepted, something like they failed to do baby led weaning or the child has that old term failure to thrive, just because something is clinically accepted doesn't mean that it's right. And so as we become more proficient at our jobs and working with families and recognizing their role as part of the care team, that language changes. And this article that I told you about helps to drive that home. Like we have to change 
if it's offensive, it's got to go. The part that kicked me was that mom didn't fail at baby led weaning. The kid had EOE. So, okay. So baby led weaning for me, I have, this is my bias. I always pick up the children that came to me and the mom said, well, we were doing baby led weaning, but, and then they find their way to me with acute or chronic PFD, but the PFD is housed in a medical etiology of celiac disease, EOE. Oh, by the way, we have unilateral vocal fold paralysis because we had CHD and we had repairs and da, da, da. Well, so I'm seeing the population that this is, they weren't set for success from the get-go and they were going to need assistance yeah. in the first place. Yeah. yeah. That's not the parent. No. That's not the Being child. A- this is just the way they came to us. You know, there's they've not done anything wrong. So baby led weaning is, do you want to summarize this? Because I feel like I'm going to give like a very obliterated answer to define it. Huh. So... I have some information about baby led weaning that is from the Cleveland Clinic's website. So that's if people are interested, they can access it there. So they define baby led weaning here. And they said that baby led weaning is when babies learn how to feed themselves. They commonly start eating exclusively pureed and then progress through different types of foods. Baby led weaning flips the script and puts babies in charge of mealtime. The basic idea behind baby led weaning is that parents and caregivers can follow a baby's lead. And that's a quote from Dr. Cherbach. This means that parents are watching for signs of developmental readiness. And when a baby is ready, they allow them to self-feed. So when I think about baby led weaning and how that's different than traditional feeding approaches, I feel like what I've read and seen is that most children involved in baby led weaning skip that pureed stage. They do not do where their parent or their caregiver does the spoon, like jarred baby foods from a spoon and feeds the infant. And instead they start with food on the tray, soft consistencies, things that are easy to mash because they don't have teeth yet. And the child is fully in charge of hand to mouth and feeding that way from the beginning. Does that match with your experience there? Yes. And then the ones that scare me the most, and I saw it witnessed, was I had cheeseburgers one time back when I was a meat eater. This was when I was still learning what a lack of gallbladder tells your body to do. But And she just straight up gave her seven-month-old, who was still top-heavy and not the most secure, like chunks of broccoli, like cooked broccoli. And we had like only a couple of teeth because we were like a delayed tooth eruptor. And it just made me very, very nervous to see this child mouthing the whole broccoli. And because of, again, all of the patients that I have seen. And so- And for typically developing kids that don't have EOE- that are not top heavy, as you described, that are, you know, can support in a high chair and that have parent supervision or caregiver supervision where they are watching them like a hawk. I think it probably works fine. You know, it's done in lots of places. The, The challenge for me as a working parent and someone embedded in American culture, I was not the best at watching my child eat every bite of food that went into their mouth, right? Like it puts a big onus on parents for or caregivers, whomever is watching and participating in the feeding situation to be ready to act, to know how to do basic CPR, basic, you know, first aid kind of things if the child should get into trouble. And that's just it. It's the if. So my recommendation is this. If you have a typically developing child, you do you. I mean, go for it. If you have a child or are working with a child that has a known diagnosis of pediatric feeding disorder, acute or chronic, then I recommend that you seek to understand what their developmental food age is. And yes, that's 
that's the term that I created in the book. But like to me, we have to know where is their food age and then meet them on that according to their safety guidelines. And if you want to do, I don't know what the term for this is, but like I like for my patients that have a tapered weaning protocol, I always review like it's like the reverse of the tapered weaning protocol. You're systematically increasing the viscosity, right? And go for, but do not take the advice of social media accounts that baby led weaning works for all because it just doesn't. It's just like one bottle isn't going to work for all or one pacing protocol isn't going to work for all. If you've seen one child with a pediatric feeding disorder, friend, you've seen one mm-hmm. child with a pediatric feeding disorder. so unique. Disorder. And the domains are different and the skills are different. And so, I mean, work with your pediatrician. They're going to be the ones to help guide feeding development. Use your resources if you're working with a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist or another feeding professional. Use their knowledge and skills to help you uh, with the developmental feeding plan that you're going to follow and stay off social media. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the ethics like just the ethics piece on that, but like, oh dear God, we'll go there on a different day. Okay. All right. So anywho, let's talk about the planning committee. One, people volunteer. It was so much fun. Oh my God. I got to virtually see Dr. Emily Zimmerman and um, Jenny Reynolds. I was so geeking out and like the boys were like misbehaving. And I was like, I swear you have to go to the other room. And they kept coming back in and asking more questions or like, they also just like to see the people because, you know, they went to school via Zoom. So they think if Zoom is up, then they need to. Also, can we just admit 4K on Zoom was a joke, but like whatever. It was great. The kids were sitting there like playing with food. One kid was always asleep. Just good times. I'm so glad that is through. Please don't ever come back. But it was absolutely amazing to witness thought leaders in our field, getting together to lift one another up and to highlight women that were not even in the and men that were not in the room and saying, this person's doing great research on this. This person has this amazing technical skill and we should highlight and really building each other up. That was so cool. So yeah. it's a fantastic community, you know, sort of a subgroup within a subgroup, people that are interested in dysphagia and feeding disorder. And then the ones that work with early end of the life spectrum within that same little small group. So it, it is a small group of people, but also just a, a really bright, forward thinking, dedicated group of people that do fantastic work and are supportive of the work that's being done in the community, even if it has nothing to do with them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's just, I mean, it's truly one continuum, but Okay. So the process for like the planning committee is people get together and they identify potential topics that we want to cover. And then based off of the topics, then subgroups break out and secure invited speakers. And the leader of the group, we were team CREA this year. Although I don't understand what the CREA was. What was that? It's a baby llama. So the the total group that was doing the planning committee this year. So we're being led by Edie Hapner and Mark DeRuder. They're the planning, the two, the SLP and the audiologists that are the convention chairs for this year. And all the topic committee chairs fall underneath their guidance. And so I was the topic committee chair for pediatric feeding and swallowing. And so the whole big group was Team Llama. I don't know where it came from because Edie and Mark were in charge of the ASHA convention that got canceled. So this was their redo. This was their chance to to bring their topic forward. And so they were already Team Llama before any of us joined. So I thought, well, as the pediatric feeding group, we'll just be Team Crea, the baby llamas. I didn't know what a Korea was. And I was like, okay, cool. Maybe it's like a food. <laughs> Just ran with the baby, baby llama. The, baby the whole big group was team llama for this year. So now like last year in DC, we were team Eagle. And so our pediatric group was team Eaglet because we were 
baby eagles. So anyway, that's where we came from. Yes. Okay. That I got the eaglet part, but the, okay, now I'm with it. But can you highlight some of the invited speakers and topics? Yes. Pretty please? So our group this year had terrific ideas per usual and across a number of different settings and informational topics. So we've really put together a nice program of invited sessions that will be fleshed out by all of the individual proposals that were put in for posters and and live presentations and all of that. I want to tell you about our masterclass first. So we have this year, Emily Zimmerman, Anna Miles, Rachel Arkenberg, Georgia Malandraki, and Angela Melanconian presenting Motor Learning Primer for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Development. So as a group, we talked about the need to highlight and make salient the points about motor learning because that is the basis for doing rehabilitation or habilitation in some cases and moving past just providing compensatory management for kids with feeding and swallowing disorders. So I feel like this group came together and we just plucked the best people to give us this motor learning primer. So that's going to be a two-hour in-person masterclass that is sponsored by our group this year. And I'm really awesome. looking forward to it. Now we partnered with SIG 13 to do another one, another masterclass. And this one is a topic that has come up today already, weaning from tubes and thickener in the pediatric population. And it will be an interprofessional panel that will include Kelly Salmon, Cara Fletcher-Larson, Brianna Miluk, Marita Maxweeney and Tony Solari that will be presenting on this topic. And I'm excited. I recognize a name there that is also doing good work with social media, bringing attention to things and helping to point people towards resources that will be part of this panel. So that's another two-hour masterclass on weaning from tubes and thickener in pediatric population. Again, pointing us towards treatment, not just compensatory strategies. Oh, you got Cara Larson. I fangirl her from afar. Yes. Cara <laughs> yeah, is fantastic and has had such great experiences there at Boston Children's. And she's also someone who volunteers through ASHA and other means to, to help spread the wealth and the, the message far and wide in our little community. And then we have some one-hour on-site presentations that I just want to highlight quickly, case studies in pediatric fees, advanced interpretation and treatment planning will be presented by some familiar names. We've got Jenny Reynolds, Claire Miller, Susan Willette, and April Johnson that are going to bring that to us. We have Ashley Caraway and Emily Mayfield that are putting together a one-hour session called Lungs, Heart, and Brain, a medical tutorial for SLPs in the NICU. I'm really looking forward to that one. And similar to that one, we have another one called Medical Etiologies and Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, a primer for the pediatric feeding specialist. So we're going to focus in on the NICU setting specifically with lung, hearts, and brains. And then we're going to explore all of the medical etiologies that can contribute to PFD and to pediatric dysphagia in this next talk. So if we have people that work across the PFD settings, NICU, outpatient settings, early intervention, there's something in there to cover everybody. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Then we have another program, a one-hour program called Infant Feeding and Development Using the Sense Program to Guide Developmental Care in High-Risk Infants. And that's Bobby Pineda, who's giving us that information. We're so excited that she's coming to ASHA to present this information. Then we have a group that's going to formed from the IDSI task force, and they're doing IDSI implementation, research and practice patterns, interdisciplinary application for pediatric populations. So taking that IDSI framework, giving us very specific applications of it to use in infants all the way up through later ages within our pediatric scope there. So I'm really looking forward to that one as well. And then this last one is reframing your practice. Critical analysis of PFD treatments. Do you know all about that one? I know all about this one, baby. <laughs> Last but certainly not least, I am looking forward to that because 
always, always the goal is to move from being a tech and just doing something because we have a previous program that we think worked into being a clinician, a therapist, a pathologist, using our critical thinking skills to understand all the pieces that have created the child we see in front of us and helping them reach the goals that they have for themselves and the, the goals that their family has for them. So I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Yes. And that's Jennifer Casto, correct? Yes. yes. And Cara Larson again. Yes. So folks, if you're interested in about non-speech oral motor exercises and tethered oral tissue issues and their how to reframe and move forward, I would advise you to come check out those two lovely dynamic women. It's going to be great. I mean, bring your questions, bring your thoughts, your biases, bring all of that there. These sessions are always better when there is audience participation, when you have a chance to say, but I thought, and then we can have that discussion. I think it'll be great. Yes, that is, that is absolutely accurate. I know we went over, but thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time and for honest to goodness, just for the the work that you do for our patients and for our profession, because like it does take one heck of a village working together to move everything forward. Otherwise the needle would never move. So thank you. That's so kind of you to say, I appreciate the acknowledgement of those efforts, but it's my pleasure. I mean, I get to meet people like you and work in this small community that is really supportive. And we see the fruits of this labor all the time. I think about how how much the needle has moved in the last 20 years the, in the small time that I've been a part of this community. And, and that is motivation to keep going. So thanks for the opportunity to be here with you today. Absolutely. Well, I'm grateful. <laughs> also, dog came down to crash the party and she's rolling around in the background in a very happy, puppy, playful mood. So that's um, perfect. I hope dog is in that same finished. way today. <laughs> awesome. Uh, okay. All right, folks. So if you are not driving, please pull out your phones and go follow Feeding Matters on Instagram, Dysphagia Cafe on Instagram, Dysphagia Outreach Project on Instagram, Dysphagia Research Society on Instagram, Alabama Dysphagia Collective on Instagram and Facebook if you're old like me. Alabama Dys. Wait, I misspelled dysphagia and wrote fusion because I don't have my reading glasses on. Okay, now now we follow you. And go follow them and be a part and come join us. I know you're going to see Dr. Gosa, myself, maybe my screaming children upstairs that I'm hoping the audio is not picking up. But you'll definitely see us at ASHA 2022 in New Orleans. So I look forward to everybody being safe, no more cuties, and being able to hug people again. So go team. I'll see you there. Thank you. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Babies.